This episode of Hearsay is sponsored by the Wheels of Justice, a partnership against cancer benefiting the Children's Colorado Center for Cancer and Blood Disorders. For more information, visit wheelsofjusticecycling.org. The First Amendment was a big topic for the courts in 2018. The U.S. Supreme Court decided two major cases, and lower courts around the country have already referenced those rulings in similar cases. One case questioned whether union fees paid by public employees are speech. In the other, a Colorado baker asked for a religious exemption to the state's anti-discrimination law. But as significant as these cases were on their own, historical context shapes how we understand them. Masterpiece Cake Shop v. Colorado Civil Rights Commission seemed especially controversial because it put religious liberty at odds with LGBTQ rights and groups on each side of the case said a ruling against them would erode all kinds of civil rights. This is Hearsay from Law Week, Colorado. I'm Julia Cardi. To understand how social factors shape the legal framework of the Masterpiece Cake Shop case, I sat down with Holland & Hart partner Stephen Collis to talk about religious freedom case law. He's an expert on the First Amendment and how the law shapes and often collides with religious liberty. He's also written a new book on the topic called Deep Conviction, due out next summer. Stephen talked with me about why Masterpiece Cake Shop's case in 2018 isn't so different from a Catholic priest's case in 1813 or a Klamath Indian man's case in 1990. He also offered some insights about how attitudes toward religious freedom can be colored by opinions of specific beliefs. Stephen, thanks for being with us. Thank you for having me. Glad to be here. For every case that gets national attention, there are plenty more dealing with religious liberty. They can be a Muslim inmate asking for the right to have a beard in prison, or a Native American student who wants to wear an eagle feather in her graduation cap. How do the basic religious freedoms asserted by these more everyday cases compare with the cases that get talked about the most? So they're all the same arguments. All the arguments in these cases come from the what are called the religion clauses. They're the first two clauses of the First Amendment. They've been there since the ratification of the Constitution. And the, the, the two clauses say, Congress shall make no law establishing a religion, and Congress shall make no law prohibiting the free exercise of religion. The free exercise clause is where most of these cases come from. And the establishment clause uh, kind of is where the notion of separation of church and state comes from. So the free exercise clause, though, those cases are almost always the same fact pattern going all the way back to the Quakers at the time of the founding. And the idea is that a law gets passed that most people are okay with, but it burdens some small group of folks, or even a large group of folks, but it burdens their religious exercise. And what they ask for is an exemption from the law. And, and so when that occurs... Uh, what you end up with is an argument over whether or not they should be exempted from a law that applies to everyone else. And as you pointed out, this has been an argument that's been occurring since even before the ratification of the Constitution. So what do you think this type of historical context can add to our understanding of the really prominent cases involving religious freedom that we're still seeing today? Focusing first on masterpiece, the argument you often hear is that Folks like the cake maker and masterpiece or the florist out of uh, the state of Washington in these cases, or even uh, stores like Hobby Lobby when they're making their religious freedom arguments, there's this notion that these arguments are coming up for the first time as if these people today are making these religious freedom arguments and they've just pulled them out of a hat. In the Hobby Lobby case, 
The Supreme Court decided closely held corporations can receive an exemption in some instances from a regulation its owners say conflicts with their religious beliefs. The ruling addressed the Affordable Care Act's requirement that employers cover some types of contraceptives for female employees. But the reality is they're making the same argument that people have made now going over two centuries. And let me just give you an example. At the time of the founding, the Quakers, they believed in pacifism and they wouldn't fight in the war. But the United States, as this new fledgling country, had a policy that said, and a rule, that all able-bodied men had to fight in the war or in battle, in, in the military. And the Quakers said, we can't do this. So they wrote a letter to George Washington asking him as the first president, we really hope that you'll respect our religious beliefs here. And so what George Washington decided to do was they're going to give the Quakers an exemption from this rule that applied to everybody else. But as you can imagine, there were a lot of arguments about whether or not that was the right thing to do. The Quakers were making the exact same argument that the cake maker and the florist and the owners of Hobby Lobby are making today. Now, that doesn't mean that the cake maker and the florist and the owners of Hobby Lobby should win every time. But people should understand that the arguments they're making are not unique. These are arguments founded in our Constitution that have been a crucial part of our freedom of religion in our country for well on two and some centuries. Stephen writes about this idea in his book due out next summer. It's called Deep Conviction, and it tells the story of four key cases about religious freedom through U.S. history, one of them being Masterpiece Cake Shop. Tell us more about what these cases are that you're talking about and, and why are they significant to the country's case law? Sure, and I should emphasize, I, I didn't pick these cases necessarily because they're the four most prominent cases in U.S. history. What I was trying to do was show how religious freedom, properly understood, applies to everyone. So the first case involves a Catholic priest in 1813 Manhattan, and, and the bottom line in that case was that the priest had been given information that could help convict someone, and he refused to testify as to who had given him that information because it had been given to him uh, during um, confession. And to him it was sacred and he couldn't share that with anyone, and so the police were threatening to put him in jail. And the, and the Catholic priest said, I can't do it. And it went all the way to court. They were threatening to put him in jail, and the judge ruled, you know what? The rule that applies to everyone else is they have to testify if they have knowledge uh, pertinent to the legal system, but we're not going to force this Catholic priest to testify. The next case I wrote about was an atheist in 1960 Maryland who was refused a job by the state because he wouldn't sign a document saying he believed in God. The third case I wrote about was probably the seminal case in U.S. history related to religious freedom, and that's called Employment Division versus Smith. And that's about a Klamath Indian man who used peyote in his religious ceremonies. And the case is very, very convoluted, but the bottom line is the question came to the Supreme Court of whether or not the Constitution mandated that he should receive a religious exemption from the laws that otherwise made peyote illegal. And so I wrote about that and was able to interview his family and a lot of the people involved in the case. And then finally, I wrote about Masterpiece, in some respects, just to bring it home so that a modern audience can see how all of these cases are, are related to one another, but yet apply to all of us at the same time. Can you talk about anything you learned about how religious freedom law has changed over time from studying these cases? Actually, what was remarkable, what was remarkable to me was how little these cases have changed. And what I mean by that is, even in 1813 New York, the prosecutor was making the exact same argument there that we see today in the Hobby Lobby case and in the Masterpiece Cake Shop case. And what I mean by that is the prosecutor with the Catholic priest in 1813 was making the argument 
that if this priest doesn't testify, it's going to be the end of the country as we know it, that all freedoms are going to get just subsumed by this idea that a priest doesn't have to testify, and Catholics are going to invade the country, and we're going to lose our entire Protestant country. Now, again, that's not my words, but that's what the prosecutor was arguing at the time. Fast forward 200 years, and you see the exact same arguments being made today, that if we give someone a religious exemption, it's going to be the end of our society as we know it, right? Women will never, ever be able to get birth control again, or an LGBT couple will never, ever be able to go into another bake shop and, and get, the treat, or get the service that they desire. Well, and so one thing I'd be interested in talking about, if you're okay with it, is um, the Masterpiece case is important to understand because you have two historical harms that, are trying to be, that we're trying not to repeat. So one of the historical harms is to the gay couple. And uh, people in the field often refer to it as a dignitary harm, right? There's a dignitary harm when you go into a shop and you get turned away. And that harm historically in the United States is something that has been kind of a great evil that anti-discrimination laws are designed to prevent from happening again. On the flip side, one of the most odious signs of oppressive, um, of, of, of a regime that oppresses religions and that has no religious liberty is telling people that they cannot work in certain professions because of their religious beliefs. And that goes back centuries. The English Test Acts actually prevented Catholics from serving in all sorts of different professions because of their religious beliefs. So it's, a, it's an odious and negative aspect of many societies that we wouldn't consider free. So you have these two wrongs that you want to try to resolve, and the masterpiece, masterpiece case kind of butted them up against each other, which is, and similar cases across the country. So the challenge for people in the field is, how can we create a legal regime that's going to prevent both of these wrongs as best as possible, that's going to balance both sides' rights? But it seems to go back to what we were discussing earlier about this gap between religious freedom and other kinds of civil rights, where one side may disregard the fact that it is a sincerely held religious belief and maybe just view it as justifying what they see as straight-up bigotry. Yeah, and usually usually what that means when people say, well, that's just a justification for bigotry, they either A, don't want to take the time to understand the person's religious belief, or B, I've also heard that they say, well, religious liberty is just an excuse to justify bigotry. And when I hear that, I generally tend to think this is a person who doesn't really understand religious freedom, right? So Seton Hall, and the reason I say that is because religious freedom protects all sorts of different religious practices. Take like a sanctuary church. Sanctuary churches provide places for immigrants who have not been documented to stay to protect them from ICE, right, from the federal government. Those churches, if the government would ever come after them, would use all of the same arguments that a Jack Phillips is using in the cake maker case. So religious freedom protects a whole lot of people and their religious practices and what they believe are their religious duties. So when people say religious freedom is just a justification for bigotry, I think they're not really, they either A, don't understand religious freedom, or what they really mean is, I don't like that person's religious beliefs, so religious freedom shouldn't apply to him. And the problem with that line of thinking is, if you're only going to give religious freedom to the people you agree with, a whole lot of people aren't going to get religious freedom. So the core arguments in religious freedom cases haven't changed much over centuries. But the case law they've created is another story. When the employment division case Stephen mentioned was decided in the 90s, it made the case law around burdens on religious liberty really muddy. Yes, it, was an a- it, it created an absolute mess for religious liberty law, quite frankly. So 
and it was fascinating too for my book researching kind of how that came to be. But the, the bottom line is, up until that point, the law had gotten relatively well settled from about 1960 up to about 1990. The law was pretty clear that if government did anything, and I mean city government all the way up to the federal government, if they did anything to burden someone's exercise of their religion, then the government had to pass the highest possible test called the compelling interest test. The compelling interest test is used to figure out whether a law that restricts a fundamental right is constitutional. To pass the test, the law has to be narrowly tailored to serve a compelling government interest. And the law won't hold up if there's a less restrictive way for the government to achieve it. Then, in 1990, this case goes to the Supreme Court. Al Smith fought his way through the courts for something like six years. And it was really heartbreaking to talk with his widow and interview her about how personally trying that was for them. They finally get to the Supreme Court, and everyone is just arguing whether or not the state of Oregon had met the compelling interest test. The state was arguing they had met it. Al Smith was arguing they had not. And that's all the briefing, that's all the argument in court was all about. And then Justice Scalia issues this opinion that ignores all of that and completely rewrites the test for religious freedom law or religious free exercise law. He writes this test that says, if a law is neutral and generally applicable, it doesn't, matter, it doesn't matter if it burdens someone's religious exercise. So without any briefing whatsoever, he just completely changed the law. And it really dropped a bombshell on everyone, because then suddenly everyone thought, what is this new test? No one even argued the pros and cons of it. None of us know if this makes sense. Even the, even the fellow justices were upset about it. Stevens said Justice Scalia looked at the case from a state's rights perspective. States have the right to regulate things, and to him, it wasn't the Supreme Court's place to interfere with that. But to make things even muddier, the Supreme Court has never given a clear definition of neutral and generally applicable. The court didn't even explicitly say whether it's one test or two. But the reality is, lower courts mess it up all the time. I mean, the Colorado Court of Appeals didn't even recognize that the neutrality and uh, the neutrality prong and the general applicability prong should be addressed. And they got reversed seven to two by the Supreme Court, basically saying, no, you should have been looking at this. So judges mess it up all the time. They just don't understand it. It's really fascinating. In the 1990s, Congress tried to address the confusion created by the Smith case. But as Stephen told me, that didn't go so well either. I often tell people that if cats and dogs ended up living together, people wouldn't have been more surprised than the reaction that came from Smith. Because what happened was, the ACLU, the American Constitution Society, uh, Christian legal organizations, all these far-right and far-left groups came together, and they, they passed a law called the Religious Freedom Restoration Act in 1993. And that, that statute was, to do, was meant to do exactly what its title sounds like. It was meant to restore the religious freedom that Scalia had taken away in Smith. They passed it in 1993 with almost unanimous approval in Congress, and Bill Clinton signed it into law uh, outside the White House with Al Gore there, and it was this big thing where, you know, they were celebrating. It was this wonderful event. Then in 1998, the Supreme Court overruled most of the Religious Freedom Restoration Act and said this statute cannot apply to states and counties and cities. It can only apply to federal law. So now you have religious freedom against federal law, but really not much religious freedom protection against states or counties or cities. So then the, the drafters of the Religious Freedom Restoration Act said, well, hey, let's, we can fix this problem. We can, we can rewrite another statute that will apply to all these things and we'll get it passed. And they couldn't do it. 
They couldn't, they, the entire coalition that had passed RIFRA almost unanimously had completely broke down to the point that this new statute, they couldn't even get out of committee. So the question is, what happened in that five years from the time RIFRA passed to the time the Supreme Court overruled most of it that prevented them from passing another statute? And it was right around that time in the mid-1990s that the LGBT rights movement really started to gain steam. And they looked at the Religious Freedom Restoration Act and realized that it was a threat to what they were trying to do. So basically the entire left side of the political aisle backed out. And what we ended up with now is some states have passed their own what we call mini-RIFRAs, some states have not, and some states have interpreted their state constitutions to mean what the federal constitution meant before Justice Scalia screwed it up in Smith. So now you have, if you go across the United States and you find some religious freedom case, you actually don't know what the law is that applies to it until you go and you look at the individual state and see what laws they've been able to pass. And it, it really is a jumbled mess, and it all goes back to Justice Scalia's opinion in Smith. You were able to interview a lot of the key people involved in the cases that you've written about in your book. And so just remind me again, who were a lot of the people that you were able to talk to? So for the more modern cases, I tried to talk to all the lawyers involved. I tried to talk to, of course, the parties who are involved. Uh, we couldn't talk to you know, the judges and the justices. From there, we just had to rely on court transcripts and whatnot. I also tried to talk to people who were personally affected by the cases. So, for example, with Al Smith, Al Smith passed away from dementia a few years ago, sadly, but his, his uh, wife is still alive, and she was very gracious. We sat down for hours of interviews, and what, what she was able to give me were all of the personal ways in which these cases affected them. And that was really my goal with the cases. It wasn't so much to focus on the law and the legal side of it, although that I did, but it was to focus on how do these cases affect individuals as they're trying to navigate them. And in the case of Masterpiece, I really wanted to tell the story from both sides, right? Because there's two very important rights butting up against each other in that case. But it was learning those personal tender moments, say, between Al Smith and his wife in 1989, 1990, when they're trying to decide if they want to keep pursuing this or not, and the risks they might face if they do. I really wanted to flesh all that out and bring the tension that they were feeling to the reader. And so that's, that's the beauty of these interviews and the people I was able to talk to. On that note, is there anything you want to talk about, about what you learned about the impact of these cases that you maybe wouldn't have understood if you had just done more detached research on them? Just the human toll they take on the people involved, and, and I do mean everyone involved. You know, it's, it's not so great a human toll when it's the state against the citizen. So in the case of Al Smith, I think there was a massive human toll on him and his wife as they were trying to navigate the legal process. Um, although they did a remarkable job of raising their kids and keeping their family intact and happy and, and trying to stay removed from it, but just the toll it takes on them. The Masterpiece case is interesting because I think you have two parties, both Charlie and David and the gay couple, and then Jack Phillips, the owner of Masterpiece, who the case took a, a human toll on both of them, right, on both sides. It wasn't just the kind of anonymous state out there attacking one side or the other. You had two groups who emotionally were very tied up into it. But it's easy to read these things from a distance and not realize just how personal they are to the people who are involved. That was my conversation with Stephen Colas of Holland and Hart about the history of religious freedom case law in the U.S. I'm Julia Carty for Hearsay.